Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. A drone attack in Syria last night on a base housing U.S. troops kills at least six Allied Kurdish soldiers and a week of major U.S. airstrikes in the region with a warning of further action. Senators unveil a $118 billion bipartisan border security bill, but House Speaker Mike Johnson calls it dead on arrival. What the money would be spent on? More than a dozen governors from across the country joining Greg Abbott in Eagle Pass on Sunday, showing their support to secure the border. Entity's Kelly Wright was there. The general election's coming up. A report outlines threats to look out for, influenced by foreign nationals, controversial private money, and the report's author says there are ways to stop it. New York City officials set to give 500 prepaid debit cards to illegal immigrants. More about the $53 million pilot program touted as a more cost-effective way to hand out food and baby supplies. Nearly a million without power, hundreds of flights canceled as storms and flooding batter California. A North Carolina country singer flagged on social media after promoting his music. Is it censorship? Hear his first-hand experience. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Monday, February 5th, and we have breaking news overnight. A drone attack in eastern Syria killing six Allied Kurdish fighters at a base housing U.S. troops. No American casualties reported. An Iran-backed terrorist group known as the Islamic Resistance in Iraq claimed responsibility for the attack. And this after the U.S. warned Iran and its proxies yesterday it will continue to strike back if American forces in the Middle East are targeted. Yeah, that was some shock and awe by U.S. air power and those retaliations. Yeah, absolutely. And experts say that using B-1 bombers are, is actually a big deal. And they're really going after those supply uh, lines running through Iran. Yeah, that's right. Major U.S. airstrikes over the weekend were carried out against Iran-backed groups in Syria, Yemen, and Iraq. That's in retaliation to last week's drone attack in Jordan that killed three U.S. service members and wounded over 40 others. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more in his response. <laughs> National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Sunday the U.S. wants to avoid an open-ended military campaign in the Middle East when promising a swift and forceful response to any direct response by Iran. The president was clear when he ordered them and when he conducted them that that was the beginning of our response and there will be more steps to come. The warning comes after a weekend of retaliatory strikes, with 85 targets hit in Iraq and Syria on Friday. Targets included command and control headquarters, intelligence centers, rockets and missiles, and drone and ammunition storage sites used by Iran's Revolutionary Guard Quds Force and its proxies. We are still assessing uh, the battle damage. Uh, our CENTCOM, Central Command, uh, is looking at the capabilities we reduced and the casualties that were incurred. The U.S. and the U.K. struck 36 Houthi targets in Yemen Saturday. The Pentagon says it hit missile launchers and buried weapons storage facilities at 13 locations. U.S. Central Command says it shot down an anti-ship cruise missile in self-defense Sunday and four ready to be launched. President Biden was asked if the strikes are working. Yeah. 
Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson says the U.S. needs to make it absolutely clear that nothing is off the table. We maintain peace through strength. The House Speaker says the administration should not be appeasing Iran and that a lot more could be done to turn up the heat. In the Trump administration, we used a drone and three missiles yeah. to take out Qasem Soleimani near Baghdad. That sent a strong message and it quelled all of the activity there. What, what we're doing right now, we're, sending, we're using potentially hundreds of munitions yeah. to, to strike close to uh, 100 targets so far, but we're not going right to the heart of the matter. Johnson says the U.S. needs to target assets in Iran's central bank. Meanwhile, Iran is warning the U.S. not to target two cargo ships known to loiter in the Red Sea, suspected of being forward operating bases for Iran's Revolutionary Guard. The Iran-backed Houthi terrorist group is promising to continue its attacks and says coalition strikes will not go unanswered or unpunished. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. For more analysis on the retaliatory strikes and its possible impact on the volatile situation in the Middle East, we're joined by Justin Logan. <clears throat> He's a director of defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. Good morning. Good to see you first. How significantly do you think these strikes affected the militant groups this time? Also, considering that there has been a lot of criticism that it took the U.S. too long to conduct them. Well, I think the administration deserves criticism here, and it's getting criticism from hawks, from doves, uh, and from pretty much everybody on the Middle East. Um, these strikes appear designed to be looking like you're doing something. Uh, we are doing something. Um, but if you remember, for example, regarding the Houthis, um, Saudi Arabia fought a war for many years against uh, the Houthis, and yet they move, right? They're still there. So I think that, you know, the administration needs to decide whether it wants to make the United States a Middle Eastern country and vie for influence uh, across the region with Iran and other actors, or whether we're overinvested in the Middle East, right? Um, the United States talks about the war in Ukraine as though it's a world historic conflict. Um, we have a very serious, in my view, competition with China shaping up in Asia. And the Middle East serves to distract the United States over and over and over again. And this is just another example of that, to my mind. I think that's a very interesting take on this. And now, <clears throat> what do you think the response from Iran and the militant groups tell you about where this is going? It's going to go on. That's the best that I can tell you. Um, the, the, this idea that we're, there's some key node that we can strike that will make this activity stop is magical thinking. It's a fantasy. Um, these groups live in the region. They know the region. This is a home game for them. Um, and the United States seems to think that with standoff airstrikes, we can do something to materially affect their behavior. And a great critique of this policy came from none other than the president of the United States himself talking about the strikes against the Houthis when he said, are they working in the sense of changing the Houthis' behavior? No. Are they going to continue? Yes. And that's just the most damning critique, to my mind, of the administration's own policy, perhaps in a moment of uh, candor from the president himself. So there is uh, two things we keep hearing from the White House. One is that the U.S. is planning to respond, and two, that they do not want to start a wider war. How do you think these two things go together? Is it possible? No, you've, you've lit on the reality. They don't go together. Um, if you want to vie for control of the region with Iran, um, it looks increasingly like you're going to have to have a broader conflict in the region. Now, 
my view is why would you want to do that? Um, there, we, our interests in the Middle East are actually quite limited. Um, and so, you know, if there were some threat to the existence of Israel or something, um, a threat to oil coming onto world markets um, or some giant terrorist threat emanating from the region, then you might want to go in there and have a war. But otherwise, there's nothing to justify the level of U.S. effort that has been poured in there heretofore. And the United States ought to be telling actors in the region, you need to stand up for yourselves. If the Saudis and the Israelis want to get together and worry about uh, Iranian behavior, that's fine to me. But the idea, for example, that the United States should be at the center of that, giving security guarantees to both countries and trying to move the pieces around on the board itself, it's the same movie that we've been seeing for over 20 years, and it doesn't end well for the United States. So to me, pulling our horns in a bit here and getting some remove from the region would be good for Americans, not to say it would be good for Syrian rebels or someone else, but it would be much better for Americans than this constant time is a flat circle policy that we have of striking militias, getting hit by militias and going on forever. Well, thank you so much, Justin Logan, for your insights today on this topic. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Israel's army released videos of operations in southern Gaza yesterday. The IDF says it raided Hamas facilities in Han Yunus over the weekend. That included a Hamas compound and office of Mohammed Sinwar, the brother of Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar. Israel says it was one of the main terrorist training bases for the October 7th attack. The army says troops found models of kibbutz entrances, IDF military bases, and armored vehicles. The IDF says it also found rocket storage facilities and tunnel shafts connected to underground tunnel routes. Families of Israeli hostages <clears throat> held a protest in Tel Aviv, demanding that their loved ones be brought home. Hamas has been asking us for a lot in change of the release of our hostages, but the Israeli government should be aware and should know that hostages come first, first of everything. They need to do uh, anything that they can and beyond to get them back uh, as soon as possible. Uh, the, the lives of our own, of our, of our people, must be valued above all of, above everything. I ask and demand the government and our cabinet take the right decisions and bring our hostages back home to us. It's been 121 days. It's much too long of a time. There's no future for this country if these people will not return home to their families. Protesters gathered outside Tel Aviv's Defense Ministry building on Sunday night. Inside, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's cabinet was convening to discuss a possible hostage deal with Hamas. The crowd held up signs with photos of their loved ones and chanted, Now, now. Some blocked the road adjacent to the compound. Netanyahu said earlier in the day that Israel was not ready to accept a hostage deal at any price. He said the essential goal is still the elimination of Hamas. Israel has been at war for four months now since Hamas terrorists launched a surprise attack on October 7th, killing approximately 1,200 Israelis and kidnapping over 250 more. And the U.S. Senate yesterday unveiled a nearly $120 billion bipartisan border security bill. The bill would also provide aid to Ukraine and Israel. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the legislation that's already facing opposition from the House of Representatives. President Biden called on Congress to unite and swiftly pass the border agreement. But House Speaker Mike Johnson declared it dead on arrival if it reaches his chamber. Johnson wrote on X that 
This bill is even worse than we expected and won't come close to ending the border catastrophe the president has created. The House Speaker addressed the border on NBC's Meet the Press on Sunday. The American people are done with this. The border has to be secured. And the president has the authority right now. He doesn't need another act of Congress. The bill would provide about $20 billion for border security, around $60 billion for Ukraine, about $14 billion for Israel, and $10 billion in humanitarian assistance for civilians in conflict zones, including in Ukraine, Gaza, and the West Bank. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he would take steps to hold an initial vote on the bill on Wednesday. The bill's proponents said it would end the controversial catch-and-release practice that critics say contribute to high numbers of illegal immigrants arriving at the southern border. It would do so by speeding up rulings on asylum cases instead of quickly releasing apprehended illegal migrants and allowing them to stay in the United States for years while they await hearings. Some Republicans are skeptical of the new Senate bill. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise wrote on X that, Here's what the people pushing this deal aren't telling you. It accepts 5,000 illegal immigrants a day and gives automatic work permits to asylum recipients, a magnet for more illegal immigration. Once the number of encounters reaches 5,000, expulsions would automatically take effect. Immigration is the second largest concern for Americans, according to a Reuters Ipsos poll published last week. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Thirteen governors joined Texas Governor Greg Abbott in Eagle Pass yesterday as a show of support. NTD's Kelly Wright brings us more from the southern border. I'm Kelly Wright in Del Rio, Texas, along the southern border between Texas and Mexico. In fact, to my left, just yards away from me, is the country of Mexico. You can see that there's fencing all the way down the border line. And over my shoulder, this tall, tall structure here, that is the original wall that the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, wanted erected all along the border. Now, what's happening here today is the fact that so many illegal immigrants have crossed into America through the southern border. To be exact, Governor Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, states that 10 million illegal immigrants came across into America just this past year. Now, he, along with 14 other Republican governors, gathered at Eagle Pass not far from here at the border there along Mexico to state very clearly that they want something done about it. They sent a message to President Joe Biden saying enough is enough, something must be done, it's time for the president they say, to act, to close the open border. And we are here to send a loud and clear message that we are banding together to fight to ensure that we will be able to maintain our constitutional guarantee that states will be able to defend against any type of imminent danger or an invasion. There's extraordinary danger, imminent danger, crossing our border all the time. I mean, the federal government's role uh, under the Constitution is to protect our borders, right? And if they fail to protect the borders, then states are obligated to step into that particular breach. Uh, none of this would have to happen if the federal government would simply enforce the laws that are already on the books. Still the greatest country on the face of the world. And we need to be thankful for that, but we also have a responsibility to protect it because I want my kids and every kid growing up in this country to get to have the same America that we're growing up in right now. But we're going to have to fight for it and protect it if that's what we want to pass down. 
And back live now, you can see that the governor of the state of Texas is quite concerned, along with the 14 other Republican governors who came here to stand in solidarity with him. All of them agree that something must be done. And many people that I spoke to here, they agree as well. In fact, some of the people living in Del Rio at Eagle Pass have explained to me that they believe that the federal government has failed them, has let them down in protecting them from illegal immigrants who have come into this country and caused them to lose their livelihood. Uh, ranchers, for example, talking about they lost their livestock. And just average citizens feeling that they can't walk freely through their own neighborhoods anymore because of the dangers or the perils that exist from the threatening issues involving illegal drug trafficking as well as human trafficking and child trafficking. It's quite a, a mess here, and the only way to clean up this mess is for Congress and state governments as well as the federal government to do something. The citizens want something done. They're actually clamoring for some action, for some change to cut down on the legal immigration issue. Reporting from Del Rio, Texas, along the Mexico border, I'm Kelly Wright. Back to you. In New York City, officials are planning to hand out prepaid debit cards to illegal immigrants sheltering at hotels. A pilot program will be run on 500 families first. The cards can only be used at grocery and convenience stores and are meant for food, hygiene products, and baby supplies. City records show the $53 million program is in partnership with New Jersey's Mobility Capital Finance. Parents staying short-term at the Roosevelt Hotel will get the pilot cards meant to replace the hotel's food service program. The cards are refilled each month with an amount based on family size and income. The amount is close to what's provided in the state's food stamp program. Applicants need to sign an affidavit promising only to spend the money on exclusive items or lose access to the program. If the pilot is successful, cards will be given to all illegal immigrants sheltering at city hotels, roughly 15,000 people. City Hall officials are touting the program as a more cost-effective way for the families to get food and baby supplies compared to the current system of providing non-perishable food boxes. Right, so basically the uh, spokesperson for the New York City mayor says it would technically save New York City 600000 a month. And then, you know, um, of course, there's critics that say like it's just giving migrants more free stuff. And, uh, but dependent on the family number, as we just heard, like a family of four would roughly get $1,000 a month. Yeah, native New Yorker 50 Cent, the rapper, he was joking that maybe President Trump is the solution. Interesting. Yeah. So stay with us. We're going to break here. Washed out roads, people rescued by firefighters, hundreds of thousands without power. The latest updates as storms batter California. President Biden wins the South Carolina Democratic primary, but there are concerns that his popularity with black voters is waning. What the poll numbers say. Nevada is holding a presidential primary and caucuses this week. It's unique for a state to have both. Why is candidate Nikki Haley only running in the primary where she can't win any delegates? A political analyst explains when we come back.
Welcome back. President Biden came out on top in the South Carolina Democratic primary with an overwhelming victory. But there are concerns that he's losing support from key demographic groups, particularly black Americans. President Biden won over 96% of the vote in South Carolina, earning him 55 delegates, his first in the Democratic primaries. But there are some lingering concerns that he could be losing traction with black voters, a key element of the Democratic coalition. Democrats have been quick to deny this, Congressman James Clyburn saying Biden's support is rock solid among black voters. And the best illustration of that, he got 96% of the vote uh, in this primary, but his largest percentage, over 97%, was in the town of Orangeburg, where there are two HBCUs and a community college. Black voters were key to helping Biden win the White House in 2020. That year, Biden won 92% of the black vote overall, compared to 8% by President Trump. Crucially, black voters in Georgia gave Biden a historic win. It was the first time since 1992 that a Democrat won there. But 2024 is a different picture. A November poll by the New York Times and Siena College found that the president's support among black voters in key swing states appeared to be waning. Only 71% of black voters polled said they would vote for Biden, while 22% said they would back Trump, an unprecedented level of support for a Republican candidate in modern times. And a December survey by Jen Ford revealed that 17% of black Americans would vote for Trump. 20% said they would not vote for either of the two current frontrunners. Some polls also show Biden as less electable among younger voters. Many young Democrats disapprove of his handling of the Israel-Hamas war. The president's focus is now on Nevada. On Sunday, he met with black community leaders in Las Vegas to discuss cost-cutting for families and local businesses. Nevada has voted blue in every general election since 2008, but the same New York Times Siena College poll mentioned earlier found Biden trailing Trump by 10 points in the state. The Nevada Democratic primary will be held on Tuesday. And for an update about the unique GOP presidential nominating contests in Nevada, we bring in Jeff Career, a political analyst and TV radio host. Jeff, thanks for your time this morning. Why is Haley not running in the Nevada caucuses, the only contest that actually matters for delegates? Hey, Kevin, uh, because candidates have to choose between a primary and a caucus. And uh, what Haley is saying is that, uh, Kevin, that the caucuses were wrapped up by Trump. She was going to uh, run in the primary, hoping to score a victory there and to create some momentum for her going forward. It could be backfiring on as the none of the vote could outpace uh, Nikki Haley in the in the primary. Kevin. Yeah, and that's pretty unlikely considering that she's the only marquee candidate that's on the ballot there. But what would happen if the none of these candidates actually exceeded her, Haley's totals? Oh, it would be a, it'd be a total embarrassment. I mean, it would it would show that uh, she's certainly not popular with Republican voters, and shows that she would have no chance uh, for the nomination if she can't even win a, a primary that doesn't include her major challenger, Donald Trump, and she's beaten by none of the above. So, a lot of the Trump loyalists in Nevada are encouraging people to vote for none of the above as a way to, uh, you know, defeat uh, Haley in the primary. Now, remember, the primary means nothing as far as delegates. Trump is uh, on path to get all the delegates in Nevada, and uh, that's why Nikki Haley isn't participating in that. And, and, you know, just to remind all of the viewers, the nomination is given to the candidate that wins the correct number of delegates. 
And in that race, Donald Trump is ahead as well. Right. And just a little side note here on the Democratic side, the state law requires that Nevada hold a set of primaries along with its caucuses, too. And Trump campaign spokesperson said that that's due to Biden's embarrassing defeat to Bernie Sanders back in 2020. Now, why is this whole race significant on the Republican side? Well, because I would say that um, it's going to build momentum for Donald Trump. I mean, he's won uh, New Hampshire. He's going to win the Nevada caucuses. It's going to be more delegates. He'll increase his delegate, increase his momentum. And, and South Carolina is a showdown, Kevin, for uh, Nikki Haley. If she South Carolina, I'm very, very close to Trump, then I do not see a pathway for her continuing. She says she wants to continue. She says she will, uh, but uh, as far as the reality, the political reality, I think it's going to be very, very difficult for her to do so, losing big time in her home state. And by the way, the latest poll that I saw showed Donald Trump up by 26 points in the home state of Nikki Haley of uh, South Carolina. So she's got a difficult path uh, going forward, and that's why a lot of Republican leaders are encouraging her to get out of the race. Right, and Jeff, one of the Republican Party chairs of a county in Nevada says that Nikki Haley has made it clear that she doesn't care about Nevada. Why would that be the case? Well, because she's participating in, in a form that doesn't lead to any uh, delegates. And Nevada Republican Party, they want the caucuses. This state law was foisted upon them. Uh, they historically have had caucuses. It's been sort of an Iowa system where people uh, select delegates by caucus. So they're not excited about having both in a caucus because it really confuses uh, the voters. So Haley opted into the caucuses. It told the Nevada GOP leaders that she didn't really care about the state, didn't care to compete for the delegates. And that's why a lot of them are encouraging the voters there to vote for none of the above. So we've got two races to look at in Nevada. Who will win the primary? Will it be none of the above? And will Donald Trump get every last delegate? And I think the answer to both could be yes. Very interesting, Jeff. And yeah, already 40,000 Republicans voted in the primary there. So we'll see what happens. Jeff Career, political analyst and TV radio host, thank you for your time. Thanks, Kevin. Changing topics, the second of back-to-back -back atmospheric rivers battered California yesterday. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the storms, which flooded roadways and knocked out power to hundreds of thousands of people. Atmospheric rivers are wide-reaching plumes of moisture that act like a fire hose tapping into warm, moist air from the tropics. Storms can then unload them as drenching rainfall and heavy snow over land. The storms prompted a rare warning for hurricane-force winds as the Golden State braced for what could be days of heavy rains. Streets were inundated and trees and electrical lines were knocked down across the San Francisco Bay Area. Gusts exceeding 80 miles per hour were recorded in the mountains. In Southern California, officials warned of potentially devastating flooding and ordered evacuations for canyons that are at high risk for mud and debris flows. Here, a passenger dumps water out of a drenched vehicle. Motorists kept the roads busy despite the rising water levels. Here, people prepared for the potential floods with sand. Roadways were blocked in areas of central and northern California. California fire crews rescued a man whose vehicle was stuck in flooded waters. Here, the rushing water of the L.A. River in Sherman Oaks on Sunday can be seen. In San Jose, firefighters rescued people and animals as heavy rain slammed the area. A large tree split in half and knocked down power lines in Santa Barbara. 
Officials in Santa Barbara and Ventura counties have issued evacuation orders for people living near areas that will likely flood. The rough weather resulted in hundreds of flights at California airports being canceled or delayed. And more than 800,000 customers were reported to be without power in California. Both NASCAR and PGA canceled events scheduled in California over the weekend due to the severe weather. The Storm Prediction Center said six San Francisco Bay Area counties were at low risk of water spouts coming ashore and becoming tornadoes. The last time the center forecasted a tornado risk in the region was in February 2015, according to the San Francisco Chronicle. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, a country singer gets flagged after promoting his music on TikTok. What triggered the social media app? We hear his story. A Chinese court gives a suspended death sentence to an Australian pro-democracy blogger who's been convicted of espionage, his family demanding his release on medical grounds. China says its economy was strong and healthy in 2023, but was it really? Beijing is suppressing any suggestion to the contrary. Welcome back. Censorship on social media. Some platforms are not only cracking down on what they see as hate speech, they're also targeting religious content. A country singer from North Carolina experienced this firsthand when a song he posted on TikTok got flagged. Let's hear about his experience. For country singer Cody Webb, his Christian faith is integral. In August, a song he posted on TikTok received a notification pertaining to what it called sensitive religious content. That is actually a song that I did not write. Um, my producer found it, uh, some friends of mine wrote it, and my producer sent it to me about a year ago, and I fell in love with it. And we sat in the, in the room and all picked up a guitar and played the song, and someone filmed it, and I posted that to TikTok. Puzzled by the incident, Cody decided to make a video sharing his experience and call out the social media platform. And it just sort of, I won't say it went viral, but it got over a million views. And um, I then posted the video uh, of the song after it came out, uh, sort of telling the story. And that, that video got millions of views. He then told his followers that he doesn't want to be divisive or to try to force people to believe what and how he believes. And that in his view, we all have the freedom to be who we are. The flagged song, If Daddy Didn't Have a Truck, expresses who he is, and he subsequently fell in love with it for that reason. Cody said that he can identify very much with the song, having been raised in a small South Carolina town as a Christian. But despite flagging his song, Cody has no ill feelings toward TikTok. Although he says he is concerned about what children, including his four-year-old daughter, will encounter when visiting social media platforms. But I feel like young people who haven't really figured out who they are yet, and they're on these platforms that can really make a big influence on who they are, that, that's what scares me, that they have so much control over that, and they could really force their agenda on the entire world if, if they're all using these platforms, you know. The suppression of religious content on social media platforms is not new. In 2020, Christian music songwriter Sean Foyt blamed Twitter and Instagram for shutting down an account that shared Bible verses about peace, while being faced with a dilemma to attract more listeners, as well truthfully expressing who he is through his music, Cody is clear on one thing, that he will never stop singing lyrics with Christian content.
And a court in Beijing gave Australian pro-democracy blogger Yang Hengjun a suspended death sentence on espionage charges today. The sentence threatens a recent rebound in ties between China and Australia. After several years of strained relations, the sentence is handed down five years after Yang was detained in China. And it comes three years after his closed-door trial on espionage charges. The details of the case against him have never been made public. Yang is an Australian citizen born in China who was working in New York before his arrest at a Chinese airport in 2019. He was an employee of China's Ministry of State Security for a decade. A friend of Yang said he's being punished by the Chinese regime for his criticism of human rights abuses in China and his advocacy for democracy. His two sons have asked the Australian Prime Minister to seek his release on medical grounds. Yang has a four-inch cyst on his kidney that might require surgery. The Australian government has summoned China's ambassador to Australia to express objections to the decision. And China says its economy was strong and healthy in 2023, but was it really? Beijing is cracking down on any suggestion to the contrary, erasing Internet posts showing the economy, the stock market and the real estate industry are all struggling. The world's second largest economy had a tough year in 2023. Now, one of Beijing's answers to the challenge, ban and erase criticism of it. In December, China's Ministry of State Security issued this order. Resolutely crack down and punish illegal criminal activities that endanger national security in the economic security field. Apparently, that includes disappearing negative commentary from the already heavily censored Chinese Internet. On December 1st, this prominent economic professor, Liu Jiping, advised people not to invest in the falling Chinese stock market. Now, all of Professor Liu's social media accounts are frozen. And when you click to follow him, you get this message, which translates, it is forbidden to follow this user due to their violation of relevant rules. CNN found similar freezes temporarily imposed on at least five other Chinese economic analysts. Also removed from the internet, this documentary highlighting economic hardship among Chinese migrant workers. I think the Chinese economy is at a cliff edge at the moment. I don't think it has started falling off the cliff yet but it's getting to a point where things can get uh, much more difficult. Officially, the Chinese economy grew by more than 5% last year, but the country's youth unemployment rate keeps hitting record highs. Then there's China's all-important real estate sector, which along with related industries, used to make up 30% of the Chinese economy. This is the Hong Kong office of the biggest symbol of China's real estate crisis, Evergrande. Until two years ago, this company was the largest home builder in China, employing some 200,000 people. Then the company defaulted on its debt, and now a court here in Hong Kong has ordered the liquidation of Evergrande. Across the country, protests as angry new home buyers demand completion of unfinished homes that they've already paid for. Perhaps the only other sector gloomier is the country's stock market. In the past three years, the combined Chinese stock market lost more than $6 trillion. 
I haven't made any money out of the stock market, so I sold all my stocks. The Chinese economy is strong, and it will be stronger, says this Beijing resident. Perhaps she got the message from this recent meeting of the country's top propaganda officials. Their order, amplify bright prospects of the economy as China heads into 2024. And another worrisome statistic for the Chinese economy is also making the rounds. That is, in the third quarter, foreign direct investment went into the negative. According to a report last week from the International Monetary Fund, China's GDP growth could drop to the 3% range between this year and next year based on the current trend. And up next, former President Trump says he won't reappoint Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell if re-elected. More on Trump's accusations about giving Democrats an edge in the 2024 elections coming up. Welcome back. Joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to give us the latest update from the financial world. So Don, what do you have for us today? I hope it's about Trump and Powell. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the presidential election is ramping up now and uh, every candidate is laying out their policy stances. So I found interesting that the GOP frontrunner Donald Trump, he said that if he's reelected, he won't reappoint uh, current Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell. So he said this during uh, Mornings with Maria on Fox Business. And the reason Trump said he wouldn't do this is because it seems to him that it, Powell is trying to lower interest rates potentially to help some people get elected. Um, he said that Powell may do something to actually help uh, the Democrats. And uh, Trump is accusing Powell of being political. That's interesting. Yeah, Trump was actually pretty critical towards Powell during his presidency, too. But tell me more how, where he's coming from this time. Okay, so, well, of course, I don't know what he's thinking exactly, but uh, if I were to take a guess uh, where he's coming from, I think maybe that Powell, uh, I mean, uh, Trump sees that the timing of the Fed talking about cutting interest rates uh, to be lining up pretty well with the election coming up uh, because. Uh, you know, if you think about it, there's no way that Biden will want to go up against probably Trump with the economy that is uh, in a downturn or, or in a recession. And when Fed talks about uh, cutting interest rates, that gives a boost to the stock market, gives consumers more confidence, and that leads to more spending, which is good for the economy. So I'm just guessing here, maybe Trump doesn't see a reason really uh, for the Fed to actually start cutting interest rates or even talk about it because the economy is doing just fine. We just got the jobs numbers and uh, it was very good. Um, unemployment is low, uh, low by historical standards. Uh, inflation is not down to their 2% target. So uh, why is there a need for the Fed to say they'll, need, they'll cut interest rates? Um, so, you know, if inflation is not down to their 2% uh, target, if anything, talking about cutting interest rates will actually hinder their objective. So, I mean, uh, if you just think about it, if Biden went up against Trump with a terrible economy, high unemployment and a crashing stock market, that's not going to be good for Biden. So, um, I, again, I don't know what Trump is thinking, but maybe uh, this is one of my guesses. Mm. Yeah, and Don, to your point, the Bloomberg's reporting that the recent stock market rally there on Wall Street was because of those interest rates. They were betting on them coming down and also that investors 
are just going to those tech stocks fueled by that AI boom. But didn't Trump nominate Powell for the Fed chair in 2017? Yeah, exactly. He nominated Powell himself uh, back in 2017. But uh, he sparred with Powell almost immediately after he was appointed to the Fed. And then at the time, uh, Trump accused Powell of hiking interest rates, uh, which was impacting the economy. So the rate hikes are intended to slow the economy by increasing uh, the amount companies uh, borrow, uh, the, the amount uh, of borrowing costs. Uh, so, and when borrowing gets more expensive, companies uh, may hire less and consumers might spend less and uh, hiking interest rates um, could Im impact government debt as well. So, but eventually it seems like uh, Powell listened to Trump, listened to him, Trump, mm -hmm. and then uh, he sent uh, rates near, to near, nearly zero with rate cuts in the early days of the pandemic. So, it's, it seems like uh, there has been some conflict there, um, but by the, the Fed chair cannot actually be fired um, by the president, but is response, the president is responsible for nominating a candidate uh, every four years. We all remember that famous tagline from Trump, you're fired. Yeah. Right, and Trump also said that he has already a couple choices for a Fed chair, but he didn't want to disclose who yet. So, but yeah. thank you so much, uh, NTD host of uh, host of Entity Business, Don Ma. Thank you. Heading to break down corrosive private money meddling foreign nationals. These are risks to U.S. elections, according to a new report. We hear from an author about what the states must do to mitigate them after the break. Good to have you back. Election security, a focal point for voters leading up to November. There are concerns over private money like that flowing into organizations from billionaire Mark Zuckerberg in the form of Zuckbucks and foreign influence, of course. A report from Honest Elections Project outlines these threats and Jason Sneed, the executive director, tells us about steps to mitigate them. Well, states should always be working to make it easier to vote and harder to cheat, and we've made a lot of progress over the last few years. But as we put out in our recent report, which we think is the definitive statement on what elections need to look like in order to be secure and to bolster public confidence, there's still a lot of work to be done, uh, particularly when you're talking about protecting against the spread of ranked choice voting, stopping a new private election influence scheme called Zuckbucks 2.0, the U.S. Alliance for Election Excellence, and cutting off foreign influence, which, despite everything that we have heard from many folks in the political left, the left is actually using foreign money right now to influence American politics. These are all very basic, common sense, popular steps that I believe every state should be adopting in order to protect their election system and to bolster public confidence in voting. So Jason, let's talk about these so-called Zuckbox. What impact does private money have on elections and what laws can states pass to prevent this? Well, private money coming into our election offices is inherently corrosive. Think about this. You have private donors who are spending millions of dollars to directly finance the machinery of democracy, the way that elections are run. Those donors may have special interests in the particular outcomes of an election, but we don't know who they are. We don't know what the ideological agenda is. We know that the groups that are using private money to influence the elections are all on the left, and they are funded by some of the political left's deepest uh, uh, pocketed donors. 
years. So we know that they are pushing left-wing politics directly into election administration. That is inherently toxic to public trust. The offices that run elections need to be neutral. They need to be nonpartisan. They need to be above board. We cannot allow these private special interests to infiltrate those offices. States can pass new laws to restrict the flow not only of money but also of the influence. And one of the things that we have recently seen is that a new program run by the same group, the Center for Tech and Civic Life, that ran the 2020 Zuckbuck operation has just been started to get around bans that have been put in place to prevent the spread of private money. That is also, I think, a demonstration of how toxic this is when you have a group trying to pump politics into elections and get around laws states are passing to protect them. Right, Jason. Yeah, that was the $80 million program called U.S. Alliance for Election Excellence to get around those laws. Let's switch gears here and talk about foreign influence. Where is it coming from? What form does it take here? And what laws can be passed to prevent it? Well, so there is a person who most Americans have not heard of. His name is Hans-Jörg Wies. He is one of, if not the largest political donors in the United States. He has personally spent half a billion dollars of his fortune to influence American politics, but he is not an American citizen. He is one of the uh, largest donors to the left. His money is going into organizations that are pushing liberal causes throughout the country. And yet, as I said, he is not an American citizen. We believe that it is important for American elections to be decided by Americans and that this sort of influence should be stopped. And yet money is flowing from this foreign national into groups like 1630 Fund and New Venture Fund, which are massive pots of money that can be spent on liberal causes. And they influence politics. They can't, they uh, find finance, ballot measure campaigns, and so forth. So we think that it's important for states to take steps, not just to stop the direct and indirect flow of foreign money into political candidates' campaigns, which is already illegal, but to also look at other forms of influence, for instance, the money going into ballot measure races. If you're rewriting the laws of democracy, as we often see um, uh, put forward in ballot measure campaigns, we believe the money should be coming from Americans. Foreign nationals should not be in a position to influence that. It's simply too important. And Jason, it is so important because polls show that 78% of Americans do not want foreign nationals influencing elections. Jason Sneed, Executive Director of Honest Elections Project, thank you for your time. Thank you. And you know what he was talking about, the ranked choice voting, that's just when you vote for someone and then you pick a second choice and a third choice. And if your top vote actually can't help that candidate win, then your second choice can help them. Right, yeah, I've heard a lot about, yeah, that, that's definitely one thing that people talk about to may, maybe help also a third party uh, candidate come in to um, get, get more support. But also, you know, I think that's such an interesting po topic because especially, you know, thinking about this, um, those unknown special interests that could potentially thwart uh, policy making. So um, I think that was a very good interview. Thank you for that. Oh, yeah. And Snead is just saying that, you know, this ranked choice voting, it makes it harder for people to understand the results. Therefore, they should ban it. Oh, interesting. All right, well, the second part of our broadcast starts now, so stay with us in just, with just a minute. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. Yeah, so there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. 
and we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories today. The U.S. vows further retaliation of Iran and its proxies continue attacks on U.S. troops. More on that warning and the wave of airstrikes launched over the weekend. President Biden comes out on top in the Democratic South Carolina primary, but there are growing concerns he could be losing support from key demographic groups. Senators unveil a $118 billion bipartisan border security bill, but House Speaker Mike Johnson calls it dead on arrival what the money would be spent on. More than a dozen governors from across the country joining Greg Abbott in Eagle Pass on Sunday, showing their support to secure the border. NTD's Kelly Wright was there. Nearly a million without power, hundreds of flights canceled as storms and flooding batter California more on the potentially historic weather system. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Monday, February 5th, and in today's top news, President Biden came out on top in the South Carolina Democratic primary with an overwhelming victory. But there are concerns that he's losing support from key demographic groups, particularly black Americans. President Biden won over 96 percent of the vote in South Carolina, earning him 55 delegates, his first in the Democratic primaries. But there are some lingering concerns that he could be losing traction with black voters, a key element of the Democratic coalition. Democrats have been quick to deny this. Congressman James Clyburn saying Biden's support is rock solid among black voters. And the best illustration of that, he got 96 percent of the vote uh, in this primary, but his largest percentage, over 97 percent, was in the town of Orangeburg, where there are two HBCUs and a community college. Black voters were key to helping Biden win the White House in 2020. That year, Biden won 92 percent of the black vote overall, compared to 8 percent by President Trump. Crucially, black voters in Georgia gave Biden a historic win. It was the first time since 1992 that a Democrat won there. But 2024 is a different picture. A November poll by The New York Times and Siena College found that the president's support among black voters in key swing states appeared to be waning. Only 71 percent of black voters polled said they would vote for Biden, while 22 percent said they would back Trump, an unprecedented level of support for a Republican candidate in modern times. And a December survey by Jen Ford revealed that 17 percent of black Americans would vote for Trump. 20 percent said they would not vote for either of the two current frontrunners. Some polls also show Biden as less electable among younger voters. Many young Democrats disapprove of his handling of the Israel-Hamas war. The president's focus is now on Nevada. On Sunday, he met with black community leaders in Las Vegas to discuss cost-cutting for families and local businesses. Nevada has voted blue in every general election since 2008, but the same New York Times Siena College poll mentioned earlier found Biden trailing Trump by 10 points in the state. 
The Nevada Democratic primary will be held on Tuesday. And joining us now to discuss the South Carolina Democratic primary is Robin Biro, a former campaign director for President Obama. Robin, thank you for your time getting up bright and early with us. President Biden had a resounding victory in South Carolina, but does it matter much for his potential rematch between him and former President Trump? Uh, South Carolina mattered the world uh, back in 2020, but no, I would argue that it doesn't matter much right now. One thing that I've got to point out, it's to point out that prior to South Carolina's primary, uh, the pollsters had Biden beating uh, his opponents with a 40-point lead, uh, but it ended up being 95 points. Uh, so, you know, I think that the polls, and look, also, President Trump last week was down by six, and this week they show him up by six. So I tend to uh, not still carry much weight on the polls. I think they're all still wrong. Well, Robin, the Palmetto State has been favorable for Biden, considering that he won with 48% of the vote back in 2020 when there was a seven-man race, or seven-person race. Why was there such low voter turnout here this time around? Uh, you know, I questioned. I called into the South Carolina office, actually, the South Carolina Democratic Party office. They did a robust ground game, um, but I think the general sentiment was that that he had it, he had it all the way around, and he did. He won by 90, you know, like a 95 point spread. Uh, and I wanna point out that uh, Dean, Dean Phillips came in third to Marianne Williamson second, which was completely unexpected. So uh, South Carolina was just a little bit strange this, this, this go round. Uh, the numbers were very low. I think all around it was just expected that he would win so much, so people just didn't, didn't think they needed to turn out. And Robin, the Biden campaign and his Democratic allies, they were shooting for big turnout among black Americans in South Carolina to show that he has enthusiasm for his base. But according to Politico, that didn't happen and they were not excited, this voting group. Why is that the case? We have an actual significant problem. The Democratic Party has a problem right now. We have definitely lost a, a portion of voters uh, to the Republican Party, to Trump this go round. The general sentiment I'm asked, and the general sentiment is that uh, the Democratic Party has taken this voting group for granted for too long and not delivered results. So that's something that we have to reckon with. We have to uh, start doing more for the black community. It's not the black vote, the gay vote, these other votes that, we, that we've always been able to depend on. That's great, but we have to actually do work for them to, to earn and, and keep those votes. Right, and Robin, I'll point out that one of the advisors to Biden re-election campaign down in Charleston, they're saying that there wasn't that quite that turnout because the voters don't feel that there's a crisis, that there's so much emergency to vote as the last time. And it was just only the diehard ones who felt like Biden has benefited them that came out to vote. So were some Democratic voters in South Carolina just completely oblivious to the fact that the state was even having a primary, considering that the state has skipped primaries in the past when there wasn't much of a contest? I can answer that. I actually grew up in South Carolina, uh, and I only moved away when I joined the military uh, in my 30s. So I still have a lot of friends there. And I definitely can tell you from social media, I had so many friends who didn't, they were completely unaware that there was even a primary. Uh, the Democratic Party did what they could uh, with a very low budget, mind you. But, uh, you know, no, to answer your question, yes, there were, there were far too many people who, who were completely unaware that there was even a primary. Mel, he's the clear frontrunner. In about 30 seconds here, Robin, what about Biden's campaign fundraising efforts out in California and Nevada? Biden has a campaign war chest right now of $92 million, which is supposedly about three times as much as former President Trump's. Uh, 
and he's going to raise a lion's share of money from California. I'm not worried about his fundraising right now, and I actually content, I would assert that that shows more enthusiasm for Biden's campaign than maybe we expected. All right, Robin Bureau, former campaign director for President Obama, thank you for your time. Thank you, sir. And we have breaking news overnight, a drone attack in eastern Syria killing six allied Kurdish fighters at a base housing U.S. troops. No American casualties reported. An Iran-backed terrorist group known as the Islamic Resistance in Iraq claimed responsibility for the attack. This after the U.S. warned Iran and its proxies yesterday it will continue to strike back if American forces in the Middle East are targeted. Major U.S. airstrikes over the weekend were carried out against Iran-backed groups in Syria, Iraq and Yemen. That's in retaliation to last week's drone attack in Jordan that killed three U.S. service members and wounded over 40 others. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the response. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Sunday the U.S. wants to avoid an open-ended military campaign in the Middle East when promising a swift and forceful response to any direct response by Iran. The president was clear when he ordered them and when he conducted them that that was the beginning of our response and there will be more steps to come. The warning comes after a weekend of retaliatory strikes with 85 targets hit in Iraq and Syria on Friday. Targets included command and control headquarters, intelligence centers, rockets and missiles, and drone and ammunition storage sites used by Iran's Revolutionary Guard Quds Force and its proxies. We are still assessing uh, the battle damage. Uh, our CENTCOM, Central Command, uh, is looking at the capabilities we reduced and the casualties that were incurred. The U.S. and the U.K. struck 36 Houthi targets in Yemen Saturday. The Pentagon says it hit missile launchers and buried weapons storage facilities at 13 locations. U.S. Central Command says it shot down an anti-ship cruise missile in self-defense Sunday and four ready to be launched. President Biden was asked if the strikes are working. Yeah. Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson says the U.S. needs to make it absolutely clear that nothing is off the table. We maintain peace through strength. The House Speaker says the administration should not be appeasing Iran and that a lot more could be done to turn up the heat. In the Trump administration, we used a drone and three missiles yeah. to take out Qasem Soleimani near Baghdad. That sent a strong message and it quelled all of the activity there. What, what we're doing right now, we're, sending, we're using potentially hundreds of munitions yeah. to, to strike close to 100 targets so far, but we're not going right to the heart of the matter. Johnson says the U.S. needs to target assets in Iran's central bank. Meanwhile, Iran is warning the U.S. not to target two cargo ships known to loiter in the Red Sea, suspected of being forward operating bases for Iran's Revolutionary Guard. The Iran-backed Houthi terrorist group is promising to continue its attacks and says coalition strikes will not go unanswered or unpunished. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And earlier I spoke to Justin Logan. He's a director of defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. I asked him about the possible impact the retaliatory strikes has on, vol on the volatile situation in the Middle East. Well, I think the administration deserves criticism here, and it's getting criticism from hawks, from doves, uh, and from pretty much everybody on the Middle East. Um, these strikes appear designed to be looking like you're doing something, 
uh, we are doing something. Um, if you remember, for example, regarding the Houthis, um, Saudi Arabia fought a war for many years against uh, the Houthis, and yet they move, right? They're still there. So I think that you know the administration needs to decide whether it wants to make the United States a Middle Eastern country and vie for influence uh, across the region with Iran and other actors, or whether we're overinvested in the Middle East, right? Um, the United States talks about the war in Ukraine as though it's a world historic conflict. Um, we have a very serious, in my view, competition with China shaping up in Asia. And the Middle East serves to distract the United States over and over and over again. And this is just another example of that to my mind. I think that's a very interesting take on this. And now, <clears throat> what do you think the response from Iran and the militant groups tell you about where this is going? It's going to go on. That's the best that I can tell you. Um, the, this idea that we're, there's some key node that we can strike that will make this activity stop is magical thinking. It's a fantasy. Um, these groups live in the region. They know the region. This is a home game for them. Um, and the United States seems to think that with standoff airstrikes, we can do something to materially affect their behavior. And a great critique of this policy came from none other than the president of the United States himself talking about the strikes against the Houthis when he said, are they working in the sense of changing the Houthis' behavior? No. Are they going to continue? Yes. And that's just the most damning critique, to my mind, of the administration's own policy, perhaps in a moment of uh, candor from the president himself. Well, thank you so much, Justin Logan, for your insights today on this topic. I really appreciate it. Coming up, House Speaker Mike Johnson calls the new Senate border security deal dead on arrival in the House. Find out what the early nearly $120 billion package would pay for. And more than a dozen governors from across the country joining Greg Abbott in Eagle Pass on Sunday, showing their support to secure the border. NTD's Kelly Wright was there. New York City officials set to give 500 prepaid debit cards to illegal immigrants. More about the $53 million pilot program touted as a more cost-effective way to hand out food and baby supplies. Washed out roads, people rescued by firefighters, hundreds of thousands without power. We have the latest on storms battering California up next. Welcome back. The U.S. Senate yesterday unveiled a nearly $120 billion bipartisan border security bill. The bill would also provide aid to Ukraine and Israel. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the legislation that's already facing opposition from the House of Representatives. President Biden called on Congress to unite and swiftly pass the border agreement. But House Speaker Mike Johnson declared it dead on arrival if it reaches his chamber. Johnson wrote on X that, this bill is even worse than we expected and won't come close to ending the border catastrophe the president has created. The House Speaker addressed the border on NBC's Meet the Press on Sunday. The American people are done with this. The border has to be secured. The president has the authority right now. He doesn't need another act of Congress. The bill would provide about $20 billion for border security, around $60 billion for Ukraine, about $14 billion for Israel, and $10 billion in humanitarian assistance for civilians in conflict zones, including in Ukraine, Gaza, and the West Bank. 
Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he would take steps to hold an initial vote on the bill on Wednesday. The bill's proponents said it would end the controversial catch-and-release practice that critics say contribute to high numbers of illegal immigrants arriving at the southern border. It would do so by speeding up rulings on asylum cases instead of quickly releasing apprehended illegal migrants and allowing them to stay in the United States for years while they await hearings. Some Republicans are skeptical of the new Senate bill. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise wrote on X that, Here's what the people pushing this deal aren't telling you. It accepts 5,000 illegal immigrants a day and gives automatic work permits to asylum recipients, a magnet for more illegal immigration. Once the number of encounters reaches 5,000, expulsions would automatically take effect. Immigration is the second largest concern for Americans, according to a Reuters-Ipsos poll published last week. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Thirteen governors joined Texas Governor Greg Abbott in Eagle Pass yesterday as a show of support. NTD's Kelly Wright brings us more from the southern border. I'm Kelly Wright in Del Rio, Texas, along the southern border between Texas and Mexico. In fact, to my left, just yards away from me, is the country of Mexico. You can see that there's fencing all the way down the border line. And over my shoulder, this tall, tall structure here, that is the original wall that the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, wanted erected all along the border. Now, what's happening here today is the fact that so many illegal immigrants have crossed into America through the southern border. To be exact, Governor Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, states that 10 million illegal immigrants came across into America just this past year. Now, he, along with 14 other Republican governors, gathered at Eagle Pass not far from here at the border there along Mexico to state very clearly that they want something done about it. They sent a message to President Joe Biden saying enough is enough, something must be done, it's time for the president, they say to act to close the open border and we are here to send a loud and clear message that we are banding together to fight to ensure that we will be able to maintain our constitutional guarantee that states will be able to defend against any type of imminent danger or an invasion there's extraordinary danger imminent danger crossing our border all the time I mean, the federal government's role uh, under the Constitution is to protect our borders, right? And if they fail to protect the borders, then states are obligated to step into that particular breach. Uh, none of this would have to happen if the federal government would simply enforce the laws that are on, already on the books still the greatest country on the face of the world and we need to be thankful for that but we also have a responsibility to protect it because I want my kids and every kid growing up in this country to get to have the same America that we're growing up in right now but we're going to have to fight for it and protect it if that's what we want to pass down. And back live now, you can see that the governor of the state of Texas is quite concerned, along with the 14 other Republican governors who came here to stand in solidarity with him. All of them agree that something must be done. 
and many people that I spoke to here, they agree as well. In fact, some of the people living in Del Rio and Eagle Pass have explained to me that they believe that the federal government has failed them, has let them down in protecting them from illegal immigrants who have come into this country and caused them to lose their livelihood. Uh, ranchers, for example, talking about they lost their livestock and just average citizens feeling that they can't walk freely through their own neighborhoods anymore because of the dangers or the perils that exist from the threatening issues involving illegal drug trafficking as well as human trafficking and child trafficking. It's quite a, a mess here and the only way to clean up this mess is for Congress and state governments as well as the federal government to do something. The citizens want something done, they're actually clamoring for some action, for some change to cut down on the legal immigration issue. Reporting from Del Rio, Texas, along the Mexico border, I'm Kelly Wright. Back to you. Officials in New York City are planning to hand out prepaid debit cards to illegal immigrants sheltering at hotels. A pilot program will be run on 500 families first. The cards can only be used at grocery and convenience stores and are meant for food, hygiene products and baby supplies. City records show the $53 million program is in partnership with New Jersey's Mobility Capital Finance. Parents staying short-term at the Roosevelt Hotel will get the pilot cards meant to replace the hotel's food service program. The cards are refilled each month with an amount based on family size and income. The amount is close to what's provided in the state's food stamp program. Applicants need to sign an affidavit promising only to spend the money on exclusive items or lose access to the program. If the pilot is successful, cards will be given to all illegal immigrants sheltering at city hotels roughly 15,000 people. City Hall officials are touting the program as a more cost-effective way for the families to get food and baby supplies compared to the current system of providing non-perishable food boxes. And the second of back-to-back -back atmospheric rivers spattered California yesterday. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the storms which flooded roadways and knocked out power to hundreds of thousands of people. Atmospheric rivers are wide-reaching plumes of moisture that act like a fire hose tapping into warm, moist air from the tropics. Storms can then unload them as drenching rainfall and heavy snow over land. The storms prompted a rare warning for hurricane-force winds as the Golden State braced for what could be days of heavy rains. Streets were inundated and trees and electrical lines were knocked down across the San Francisco Bay Area. Gusts exceeding 80 miles per hour were recorded in the mountains. In Southern California, officials warned of potentially devastating flooding and ordered evacuations for canyons that are at high risk for mud and debris flows. In San Jose, firefighters rescued people and animals as heavy rain slammed the area. A large tree split in half and knocked down power lines in Santa Barbara. Officials in Santa Barbara and Ventura counties have issued evacuation orders for people living near areas that will likely flood. The rough weather resulted in hundreds of flights at California airports being canceled or delayed, and more than 800,000 customers were reported to be without power in California. Both NASCAR and PGA canceled events scheduled in California over the weekend due to the severe weather. The Storm Prediction Center said six San Francisco Bay Area counties were at low risk of water spouts coming ashore and becoming tornadoes. 
The last time the center forecasted a tornado risk in the region was in February 2015, according to the San Francisco Chronicle. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. All right, we have to wrap up our show right here, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information, so stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.